to be with you all um, for our first 40 days celebration. Um, hey, we could go on, couldn't we? We could keep worshipping and just get a little taste of heaven. But um, I'm here to talk about the church as family because I think it's just an important, important thing. So I was, um, I became a Christian when I was 17, and um, in March 1994. So you can work something out from that. I know I don't look it. But um, that's 29, 29 years ago. And, um, and the following week after becoming a Christian, I turned up at King's. And uh, not in here. This building wasn't quite here yet. Um, it was up in a school building up the hill. That school's no longer there either. But, you know, I, um, I didn't know what to expect, actually, because I didn't know. I'd never heard of King's Church. It was through a contact that I, that I arrived at King's. I didn't know. I'd never heard of it. I assumed it was a building. I assumed King's Church was a, a brick church building or something. I just didn't know. I, did, I had been to Sunday school as a child at Holy Trinity. My mum taken me very faithfully there until I got bored and said I didn't want to go anymore. Uh, so I kind of knew a bit about church. But I just didn't know what to expect. And um, I don't remember who was speaking that day or what they were speaking on, which is really encouraging for me. Um, I don't remember who was leading worship or the songs that we sang. All I remember was a strong sense of coming home, that this felt like home. And not this, but this, the people. It felt like home. I just remember a strong connection to this bunch of people that I had never even met. And some of you are, will have been there, actually, in that meeting. You probably won't remember. It, probably, it wasn't a momentous occasion when I walked in the room. But some of you will have been there in a meeting of around 200-odd people, I guess, at that time. Uh, most of them, not people I would have chosen to hang, hang around with, in, naturally. But I knew I wanted to be with these people. Something just had shifted in my heart. This, and not just on a Sunday morning. I wanted to be with these people whenever I could. Every opportunity, this became, church became my life the major part of my life, and I wanted to gather with these people, share life with them. It was family. That was family, and that is really the theme for these evening celebrations, looking at different aspects of that. As we, as we think about and hopefully put into practice these rhythms of discipleship that we're speaking about on Sundays and that we're looking at through the daily devotionals, one vital ingredient that runs through all of it is the church family. These are rhythms that we pursue in the context of community. We pursue them together in the context of family. And of course, families are complicated. Families are really complicated. The church is no different. Um, you know, there are disagreements that happen. There are fallings out that happen. There are problems to overcome in any family. And the same is true in the church. And so on some of these evenings, next week we're going to have a prophetic evening. We're just going to look at the theme of us being a prophetic family. It's just going to be a brilliant prophetic evening. Phil Wilthew coming uh, a great friend of mine from King's Arms in Bedford and a great prophetic voice. It's going to be a fantastic prophetic evening. But on the evenings after that, we'll be focusing on particular areas that can be complicated. As I said, families can be complicated. There are some particular areas that can, if we don't handle them well, can lead to some people not feeling part of the family, not experiencing what I just described that I experienced when I first came to King's and how I felt about the church ever since. So we'll be looking at things like the fact that we are ethnically diverse. Um, that's a huge part of who we are, that we are socially diverse, socioeconomically diverse. We are relationally diverse. 
You know, some people are single, some people are married. This is a, that's a huge area that we need to get to grips with properly so that this really is family for all, not just for some. Um, we're an intergenerational church. We have generational diversity. So we're going to be looking at those kind of different types of diversity and how we pursue unity in that diversity, how we really do make this family for all. And it's something that God's been saying to us and to me a lot over the last year or so about the church being family, but that not everyone experiences it like that. But the church is family. It's not an organization. It's not an institution. It's not a business. It's a family. And so that's what I'm going to speak about and what we're going to pray into this evening. I spoke on this in September, actually. And uh, this message would be remarkably similar. But it's a message worth repeating, I think. So throughout the New Testament, language of family is used uh, to describe the church. So brothers and sisters, uh, the household of God, adopted into family, adopted, he's our father. Um, Jesus says to, on the cross, he says John to John, his mother, John, this is your mother, this is your son. And he institutes this family centered around Jesus. It's not a biological family, it's, it's completely centered around him. Familial language is used throughout the New Testament th- to describe the church. So what that means is that biblically speaking, the people sitting around you this evening are your brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. And um, just like our biological families, we don't really get a choice in that. We didn't choose our families. It's chosen for us. And because we belong to Christ, we belong to his family. We're inseparably bound together. First of all, in the wider universal church. You know, we have brothers and sisters in Christ across the world. But also, of course, in this local part of the body here at King's Church High Wycombe. Now, we might be familiar with that language but you know this is a profound truth being brothers and sisters it's a profound truth that should profoundly affect the way we live our lives and the kinds of things that we prioritize in our lives and how we see each other and how we uh, act towards each other but is that your lived reality that's the question i want to ask is that your lived reality how do you see the church really Because you might be familiar with the concept, you might agree with the concept of the church as family, but does your life demonstrate that this is your family? Does your life show that? And probably some of the language that you use doesn't help, because we talk about going to church. You know, today I'm going to church, meaning I'm going to this particular location at a particular time, and that is church. And if that is how we understand church, then we have, we've missed it, you know, we've, we've missed the point. This is, a ga- this is a family gathering. This is not the sum total of church. This is a family gathering. It's a brilliant family gathering. I love being here. But the family aspect goes much wider than that, much wider than any location and any particular time. So how do you see the church? Because how you view something will determine how you interact with it and how you engage with it and what place it has in your life. Now, something that the Apostle Paul observed about the church in Corinth is that there was too much of Corinth in the church. So there was too much of the Corinthian, the wider kind of Corinthian culture, which was pretty seedy. It had got into the church. It had crept into the church. The same is true of us. We're no different. We're influenced by the culture we live in. So what is our culture? How do you describe our culture? Well, there are lots of words you could use to describe it, but one word that captures it quite well is consumer. We live in a consumer culture. Everything's instant. We can just order online, get what we want, when we want it. It's consumer. It's an entertainment culture. 
You want to watch something, you just stick Netflix on. You know, it's, it's all about entertainment and consumption. And it's very easy for the same attitudes to come into the church, that you come as a consumer, that you come as an attender that expects a certain level of service. To see the church not as a family that affects and uh, is intertwined with your whole life, but as a service provider that is there to meet your needs and your preferences. And some of you might be thinking, no, that's not me. But I think to an extent, we all have a little bit of that. We all have preferences, and sometimes we get a bit disgruntled if our preferences aren't met. Look, if you're in a restaurant and the food isn't up to scratch, I mean, if you've gone to a restaurant anywhere around here, you've already paid a lot of money. costs a lot to eat out here, even in... I went to Wagamama the other day, and I was like, what? I've just got rid of 100 quid. For what? I'm not going there again. Waste of time. But um, it was my son's birthday, so it wasn't a waste of time. It was great, but... Um, but if you're in a restaurant and you paid money and the food comes out and it's not up to scratch, you know, it's cold or it's not what you ordered or it looks right, you are well within your rights to send it back and ask them to do it again or give you money back. You're well, I mean, if you're British, you might not do that because British don't particularly like that kind of confrontation or you're afraid the chef's going to spit in your food or something. But, but you are well within your rights to send it back because in that environment, you are paying for a service. So you have a rightful expectation to the quality of that service. That does not work in families. That mindset doesn't work in families. So if I get home from work and I look at the dinner that, my, that Suzanne has lovingly crafted and I come in and point out what's... I mean, I've, I've, I've learned from error. And I come in and I point out what's wrong with it and I demand that the problem be corrected. That doesn't go well, Okay. <laughs> I get a very different kind of response. The point is consumerism, customer service mindset does not work in a family. We are a family. So how do we apply that into the church? See, a consumer mindset is more about what the church, whatever the church means. This is a little bit of a bugbear of mine when people say, oh, the, the church should do this or the church hasn't done this. It's like, who, well, who do you, what do you mean? Who do you mean? Who, does it mean me? Is it the, the, the elders? What, who, who do you mean by the church? Because we are the church. You are the church. Anyway, a consumer mindset is all about what the church can do for me and, and how the church can meet my needs and my preferences rather than what is my place in this family that God has seen fit to add me to. He arranges the parts of his body. He's the one who's called you to be here. And if he's called you to be here, he's called you here for a purpose. He's called you here to contribute, to be part of things. So, so, so it's looking at what is my place in this family? How do I contribute? How do I love my brothers and sisters well? How do I overlook offence? Because offence will come. The key is how we deal with offence when it comes. How do I overlook offence? And I've got to tell you, if, if you do see the church as a service provider, it will let you down, whatever it is. It will let you down. I can guarantee it. The worship won't be quite to your liking or the preach won't be good enough or the pastoral care wasn't quite what you hoped for. The leaders just weren't there for me. I didn't get much out of that small group evening so I'm not going to bother going back. That person was rude to me. They snubbed me. They didn't even say hello. I'm not coming back here. You know, if you just see the church as a service provider or as an organization, I guarantee you, you will be let down. It will let you down. You'll just drift out of what little community that you have. But the church is not a service provider. The church is a family. And I love how uh, Megan Hill puts this in an article I read here. So I've got this quote, which I think will come up as well. She says this, The church is not a man-made society that we can participate in or opt out of according to our own level of comfort. 
the PTA, the Neighbourhood Association or the Library Booster Club don't obligate us to personal sacrifice when things get tough. Family does. Family does. Because God's people are our family, we, this is key, we will hold our own preferences and priorities loosely. We will open our hearts and our doors. We will pull up another chair to the dinner table and add another name to our prayer list. We will give them our groceries, our furniture, our smiles. We will share their grief and trials and disappointments. We will look for ways to show love. As a result, we will expect to have less money and less free time than we would have on our own. We will expect to have added sorrow. We will also expect to have great joy. I love that. That's the church. It's a beautiful description of the church. Sacrificial love, sacrificial relationships, just as Jen was reading about earlier from Philippians 2. Be like Jesus. Put others before yourselves. Don't consider, others, don't consider yourself better than others. It's sacrificial love. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. So I'm going to have a quick look at Acts chapter 2. Very familiar to us, I'm sure. Uh, following the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 people respond to Peter's message. I mean, that's a successful message, isn't it? They get baptized. I don't know how that works. But 3,000 people receive new life in Christ. The church is born. Then we have a description of what life looked like in the early church. So verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Want to see that? The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Now, familiar passage, but the word that always leaps out at me from that passage is the word together. Together. It's repeated three times, but it's, it's, it's woven throughout. It's all implied throughout. They met together every day. Every day in some form or another, whether that was in large groups or in small groups, whether that was in the temple courts or in people's homes or both. They clearly just loved being together. These first disciples, these first converts, these first believers loved being together. It's like they couldn't get enough of each other, so much so that I suspect for them, their regular life was an interruption to their church life. Church life was what it was about for them, but they still had jobs. They still had to do that stuff. But for them, it's probably an interruption. I suspect that for most of us in our day, the reverse is true because we've reclassified and redefined church as a uh, the organized meetings run by a group of professionals which take up certain limited time slots in our week rather than what we see here in Acts 2, which is that the church is a family that love being together in some form at every opportunity. Why did they love being together? Well, because I think what we see here is that together is not just something they did, it is something they were. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together. That's not talking about a place. They were together and had everything in common. It goes on to say they met together, but they met together like that because they were together. It was in their fabric. It was in their very being. A radical change had taken place 
in their lives. I don't think the apostles needed to tell them to do this. They didn't need to tell them to meet and go in each other's homes. They just wanted to do it because they had received new life in Christ. They had received the Holy Spirit. And you see what they did when they met together. They broke bread. They prayed. They, they read scripture. They praised. They worshipped. It was all centered around Jesus. They were united with an inseparable bond and there was a commonality between them that went far deeper than any national ties or any racial ties or any political ties, even deeper than biological ties. This was family. And what they had in Acts 2 was a radical, spirit-empowered, joyful togetherness and belonging. Now, we have received the same new life in Christ. We have received the same spirit and we have been given each other. It's a gift. You might not always think it, but we have been given each other. I described my experience of when I was 17, just, you know, family and just wanting to be with these people all the time, that these people I'd never met. But the thing is, why wouldn't I want that? Why wouldn't any of us want that? Because I've, if I've had this radical revelation of Jesus that has totally transformed my life, I want to be with others who get that. Because my friends outside the church or my neighbors they don't get it they don't see it they don't see what I see I want to be with others who worship him as well I want to be with others who enjoy Jesus this is what C.S. Lewis said about it he said I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but it completes the enjoyment what does he mean by that I think it means it's like if you see something beautiful you can enjoy and appreciate its beauty for its own sake and you can enjoy that on your own actually you really want somebody else to see it to be able to enjoy it together you know it's like there's something in that that completes that enhances the enjoyment that you already have it's like if you you can enjoy a stunning sunset on your own you can stand on the cliffs and look out over the sea and enjoy this stunning sunset and you can do that on your own but also you kind of want somebody else to be there to share the experience so you can say look at that isn't that amazing isn't God good? Look at that. It's just absolutely, um, and you can marvel at it together. You know, there's something in that. Or, and I know not everybody will appreciate this or understand this, but I like football. I like watching football. Some of you here will, will know what I'm talking about. But, you know, if I watch football on the TV and I see a goal scored, and it's a great goal, for me, it's a thing of beauty, okay? It's a beautifully crafted goal, and I like that. It was amazing. You know, and I, I enjoy that. I respond to that. I could say, oh, what a goal. But what I really want to do is immediately text someone and say, did you see that goal? What a goal. What an amazing goal. Because I want to, to, to share the experience. I want to share that praise with somebody else who agrees with me and who can also appreciate the beauty of what I have just seen. Or even better, when you're in the stadium and you're sharing this thing with thousands of others and you're, you're joined together by this mutual appreciation of, of a thing of beauty. It completes the enjoyment of it, enhances the enjoyment when you're able to appreciate it with others. And I'm sure we all know, as, as, as important as um, prayer and worship on our own is, and we're talking about that a lot during this time, but we all know that worshiping together and praising together and praying together is a different experience. There's something enhanced in it. There's something completed in that when we do that together than when we do those things on our own. So we need one another. We need one another because we've been joined together in family and God has designed it like that for a reason. But for family to work well, it needs, to, it needs loving commitment 
It needs everybody playing their part. It doesn't need consumerism. That erodes the church. It needs you to be there in so many different ways. I'm not just talking about meetings. Just It needs you to be there. It needs you to turn up at every opportunity. It needs you to prioritize at every opportunity. See, too often I see in people or I hear somebody talk and there's a mindset there that says, well, I'll turn up when it's convenient to me, but really it's a low priority. That's a consumer mindset. And it's tragic, but it's not altogether surprising that those people drift out of community because other things are more important and then more often than not, they disappear. People who were, it's, it's heartbreaking, people who were, who were part of the family here, like integral part of the family here, and they're not here anymore. Not because they've moved away, but they're not here. They've disappeared, they've faded out, and it started with a drift, it started with prioritizing other things, and it's tragic. Now, I'm not talking here about legalistic and dutiful attendance at church meetings. Church meetings are really important, you'll never hear me saying anything else. Church meetings are really important. It's really important to prioritize them. But it is much bigger than that. It's about belonging and commitment and being joined together in family at all times, all through the week, being united in Christ. That's what it's about. These these are your brothers and sisters. How are we loving one another? And then in Acts 2, we also see the impact of this way of life that the believers adopt that they enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People saw this radical community and they liked what they saw and they wanted a part of it. They, they wanted whatever these people had and whatever provoked this radical change that they saw, their togetherness and their love was one of the best evangelistic tools that they had. But then that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. John 13 Verse 34, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice it's not a suggestion. It is a command. A new command I give you, love one another. It's a command. Jesus is saying, when you do that, when you love one another in this way, in the way I have loved you, which is a pretty tall order, by the way, If you think about it, because if you love others as Jesus has loved us, that's sacrificial, that's laying down your life for others. So that's a pretty tall order. But Jesus is saying, when you love one another like that, people will notice. The world will notice. It's it's how they'll know who you are. It's how they'll know that you belong to me. So this isn't just about being family for the sake of having a nice, cozy club where we're all lovely to each other and that kind of thing. No, no, it's a huge part of our witness to the world. Do people notice our love for one another? And actually, I think Jesus goes further. He raises the stakes. He raises the bar of our love for one another even more in John 15. So in verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. That like Jesus is making this link between keeping his commands and being able to stay close to him to remain in his love. And he goes on in verse 12 and says, my command, here it is again, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now we know that we can't do anything to earn God's love, favor, or forgiveness. We don't earn it. It is 
It is given to us because of what he did. It's his, it, the cost was his. So we know that. But our actions do flow out of having received his love. And it seems that Jesus is saying that we can only hope to love one another in the way he's describing. We can only love one another as he has loved us through remaining in his love, through abiding in him. It's empowered by him, but he also seems to be saying that our connection with him kind of depends on our connection with one another. That impacts it, that affects it. You are my friends if you do what I command. So you can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That doesn't wash with Jesus. You can't even say, I love Jesus, but you know, I'm indifferent about the church. Now, I think Jesus would say, do you really love me? You don't love me. If you don't love my church, the, the, my radiant bride that I gave myself for, that I died for, if, if you don't love, if you're not prepared to love the people I've given you sacrificially, do you really love me? You don't love me. So our love for one another is so, so important. Again, not to earn anything from Jesus, but out of the reality of what he has already given us. And by the way, in case you think I'm saying that this doesn't happen here, no, this is a wonderful church. This is a, like I said, I, this has been my home for the last 29 years. And I've, I've seen incredible things and experienced personally the love and generosity expressed in extraordinary ways over the years and, and seen sacrifice and generosity from people, support given to people who are in need, people going through tough times. Just When you hear those stories that kind of go on under the radar, you're just like, that's brilliant, that's the church. When you find out somebody's been taken care of, where somebody's need has been met, where, and it's just going on, nobody has to tell anybody to do it, it just happens because we're in Christ, we're family. Those are the wonderful stories. Of course, as the church leader, you also sometimes become acutely aware of times when that hasn't happened. And when something has just fallen a bit short, and that's really grieving when you hear that. And, or, and when I personally kind of start to think, could I, have, could I have done something better then? Could I have done something? I thought about contacting that person. I didn't. I should have done. And you can start to kind of beat yourself up a bit about it. But, you know, this is, a, this is an amazing church with amazing people. But our love for one another is more important than anything else. You know, we could have the very best worship in the world we could have the very best speakers we could have the best kids work the best small groups and actually i think we do those things pretty well but ultimately none of it matters none of it matters if we don't love one another it's worthless it's pointless if we don't love one another and we've got to pursue that love for one another we've got to be intentional about loving one another because that's what jesus died for and it's why that passage in acts 2 starts with saying that they were devoted to fellowship Devoted, that's a strong word. Devotion is active, it's intentional. You cannot be passively devoted to something. We've got to go after it and not just assume that it will happen on its own. Now, of course, we can think uh, there are too many people to be devoted to. There are just too many people in the church. I don't know everybody. You know, uh, listen, there were, there were 3,000 added in one day in the book of Acts, and that grew to 5,000 very quickly. Clearly, this is not dependent on knowing every single person because that would have been impossible. So clearly, that's not the criteria. Some of you in here I know well and I've known for years and you know me pretty well. Some of you I know a bit and there will be others in here who I don't really know. And I don't know everybody's name in the church. I try. I do try. Forgive me if 
we've had a conversation and you've told me your name and I haven't remembered it. It's not personal. I try to remember names, but I don't always do it successfully. But I don't know everyone's name. The question really is, it's not about me, because I can't, I know I'm called the senior pastor, but I can't pastor everybody here. I can barely pastor myself most of the time, you know. The question really is, is there somebody here who does know your name? And not just who knows your name, but who knows you. People who are in your life. People who see you at your very worst, and yet they still love you. Because that's family. That's what happens in family. People don't always act very well in families, but you still love them anyway, because they're your family. Are you known, and do you know others? And if you're not in that position, my question to you is, what are you doing about it? It's very easy to... It's very easy to become a victim and say, oh, the church doesn't care about me. The church has abandoned me. Listen, that's rubbish. I'm sorry. It's nonsense. The church does care about you. I care about you. The question is, what are you doing about it if you're not in that situation? Because if you want to be in the church family, if you want to be part of it, you also have to be intentional and devoted to fellowship, not just expect everyone to be devoted to you you've got to make moves as well and I can guarantee you that if your sole involvement in church life is coming to big meetings whether that's on a Sunday or a meeting like this if that's your sole involvement in church life and maybe it's sporadic attendance as well um, you will not genuinely know others or be known by others it's impossible you just can't it will be surface level stuff all surface level acquaintances Now, small groups and serving teams, they're great starting points for being intentional about community, about getting into family, but they're not the finished thing. They're still still compartmentalized times in the week. They're still kind of separated out, but it's a good first step. If you're not in a small group or you're not in a serving team, that's your first step to get involved in there somewhere. But there's another step beyond that where you just share life with a few other people, and it will probably just be a few won't be everybody. You just share life. You're in and out of each other's homes. You help one another out. And it's not dependent on having a particular small group meeting at a particular time. It goes beyond those kind of structures. The structure's there to help, but the structures cannot make you pursue family. Because you can be in a small group and still be very isolated and still not, not really join in, still not enter in. So if you don't have that, you've got to be intentional about it. But on the flip side, just very quickly, a a bit of a challenge to those who do have that kind of community, who do have that group of people, how open is your group to people coming in? How welcoming are you as a group? Are you open or are you a clique? Neither extreme is good. Surface level acquaintances through to being in cliques, neither of those are conducive to healthy family. So we are to be devoted to one another. We are to love one another. And something that is extraordinary that we see in Acts is uh, that we see in the early church that no one among them was in any need. No one was in need. What an amazing witness that is to the world. Absolutely extraordinary. Acts 4 says, All the believers are one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. My question to you is, are you aware of people in need in the church? Whether that's a practical need or whether it's an emotional need, they're people who are isolated or on the fringe feeling a bit lonely. Are you aware of people in need? If you are, step in and help. You step in and help. Don't rely on 
the church. Don't assume that the leaders of the church or the elders are going to be able to do that. You step in and help. And again, I know so many of you do this already, but you step in because you are the church. So when somebody says the church wasn't there for me, well, who do they mean? It's all of us. We are the church. It's up to all of us to make sure that no one among us is in need. So if we're aware of need, let's go and meet it as well as we can. Now, just to finish with this, we can, I can talk about all this stuff and sort of think, well, is this just a pipe dream? Is it, is, that really, you know, is it actually possible to love one another in this way? So let me finish with what Jesus himself prayed for the church in John 17, verse 20 to 23. Jesus prayed this, My prayer is not for them alone, as in the disciples who were physically there with him at the time. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. That is extraordinary. Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would be united in the same way that Jesus and his Father are one. That is perfectly one. That is perfect unity. And that that is what will lead the world to see and believe. That will lead to revival. If we can live and when we can live like that. And we can think, look, how is that even possible? I know my limitations. I know how flawed I am. I know how irritated I get with people and... How is that even possible? Well, it is possible. Why? Because Jesus said it. And Jesus prayed it. We've got to believe that. If Jesus prays it, we've got to believe it's possible. And then Jesus equips us through his Holy Spirit to go after it, to supernaturally love one another and to display the glory of God to the world. We will get it wrong very often. We will make mistakes in this, but we continue to pursue it in the power of the Spirit. So how do you see the church? as an organization, as a service provider, or as a family. If you're in Christ, you have been adopted into the best family, the best family there is, with a perfect father, a perfect older brother, and a whole bunch of very imperfect and slightly weird brothers and sisters who I love so dearly, and we are to love one another so dearly. So let us be characterized and known for our sacrificial love for one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we live in a divided world, an isolated world, a lonely world. We have a chance to be one. We have a chance to be together and to be united, just as Jesus prayed that we would be, so that we can display the glory of God to the world and offer the hope that we have found in Jesus. Amen.